everybody got their fake titles written out? Shit. <laughs> yeah, I got, I got something. <laughs> All right. I'm pretty happy with mine, I gotta say. Came up with it about 20 minutes ago. Yeah, I came up, I came up with mine earlier today. I didn't stay up all night on this one. I'll just admit. <laughs> now that we're coming up on 100 episodes, you can finally take a little breather, I think. Finally. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, a solid, wide receiver, going places, and doing it all in the nighttime. <laughs> you did well. I'm co-host Jeremy Ruggles, and I officially move to move the Billy Goat Curse to Wembley Stadium. <laughs> Oh, wow. It's a sports joke, guys. <laughs> England just lost. Yeah, so I heard. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am co-host Peter Cook, and I am a professional differentiator between Richard Lester and Richard Donner. And the biggest distinction right now is that Richard Lester is alive and Richard Donner is dead. R.I.P. <laughs> Who's paying you for that? Hmm. <laughs> The people. <laughs> okay. Checks out. You're professional. Superman is paying me. <laughs> Hi, I'm Greg Kaz. I'm uh, the guest today. Once again, I'm pleased to be here. And my whole job here is to split the difference between, you know, high culture as defined by record collecting nerds and low culture as defined by the mass record buying public, which will come in very handy on this episode. Ooh. I thought you were going to say us when you're talking about low culture. <laughs> <laughs> High brow and low brow. Yeah, we're the low brow. <laughs> we, we know he's, our place here. To he's he's come down to bless us with some knowledge today. <laughs> well, Greg, thanks for joining us again. You, you joined us at the beginning of season two to talk Ramsey Lewis. Uh, for either those who haven't heard that episode or perhaps who forgot, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? What you do? I'm a long-standing DJ, journalist, music writer, record collector, and just all around, just I guess you know, music addict. And I, you know, I've done a lot of different parties. I've been doing it for a very long time, and I'm also a guy who is very capable of just going very, very in depth and at great length about a pretty baffling variety of different musical genres, cultures, and subgenres, and subcultures. And, uh, you know, I try to, I mean, I basically fit the nerd profile, but I'd actually, you know what, I wear it with pride, you know, it's all, it's all in how you wear it, you know, so, uh, <laughs> so I will wear the scarlet letter N for nerd, you know, with pride. So that's why I'm here. And that's why we're gonna have some fun tonight. Owning it. Yeah. Fully owning it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Embrace it. Yeah. I, I, when I asked you to, uh, 
discuss if you wanted to discuss this record that we're going to feature tonight i did not feel the need to ask whether or not you knew the artist or the album i just knew that you would yes yes (laughs) absolutely and who and what might that be the record is going places by a gentleman named michael henderson and it's his second um solo album after many years playing with a lot of really big people he spent five years as the go-to bassist in Miles Davis's electric bands of the early 70s. He also did sessions, I mean, being from Detroit, of course, he did sessions that were very much Motown-related or directly on Motown, such as the classic Detroit instrumental session that he did with Marvin Gaye and uh, with Ray Parker Jr., who's also on this album, and Bohannon on drums. So that's a good little band right there. Marvin Gaye, Michael Henderson, Ray Parker... And Bohannon, I would I would hire that band for my keg party for sure. But uh, big budget, yeah, big budget, <laughs> right? Yeah. So uh, he he definitely he and he also worked with you know Roberta Flack and Stevie Wonder and a lot of other people. And so when he finally stepped out to start his solo career, he made a rapid sequence of albums that became very very popular in the sort of like urban and funk and R&B worlds. And one of the things we're going to discuss here is the kind of the slight discrepancy between the Michael Henderson that fans of the Miles stuff came to know and the Michael Henderson that most of his actual fans know him as and how the the, the twain shall never meet, although I don't know if that's entirely true. Because if you (laughs) ask Michael himself, he says, yeah, I do this and I also do that. Yeah, it's it's a lot of interesting stuff to uh, discuss there. Yeah, yeah, I'm very ready to get into that. But first, I think it's time to feature a track. And we're going to start with I Can't Help It, which is side A track track four. four. And yeah, let's, let's do that right now. Me, I just 
That bass. That bass. Yes. Uh, I mean, Michael is just an, an outstanding superlative bassist, which, you know, I guess you'd have to be to stay with Miles Davis for five years. <laughs> yeah, I, when listening to that just now, I took note of something that I hadn't thought about previously. I almost have to wonder, this is 1977 that we're talking here, and I couldn't help but note the, the similarity of that bass line to uh, Queen, Another One Bites the Dust, which I know John Deacon, who wrote that song, kind of modeled it yes. after disco, mm. and I, I have to wonder if that might have been one of the inspirations right there. It's quite possible. I mean, that's one of those kinds of bass lines that were just really going around in funk in, in, in particular. It's funny because... Uh, you know, you hear a baseline like that. That's like a very kind of standard funk baseline of the '70s, which I guess the mainstream public came to know via disco. But actually, if you listen to funk bands going back even a few years before that, you know that was a type of baseline that you would hear a lot. And you know, all those bands like Queen were definitely paying attention to funk, so they would have heard something Michael Henderson had done for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, Rick James was definitely laying down very similar bass lines mm-hmm. around that time as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, My- Michael Henderson like is so multi-talented because he was able to travel the astral spaceways with Miles during that whole kind of like on the corner, Dark Magus, you know, era, Agartha and all that stuff. But at the same time, he's a great songwriter, singer. He has a very good like knack for like a funky groove and a pop hook. And that's all things that he kind of was trained in even before joining Miles. He could go any direction with that. He's got a, he's got a great he's got several great voices. He's got the falsetto that you heard on that track. And he's also got kind of a more baritone voice that he also uses to great effect on a bunch of other songs. So on any given song, yeah. he can like flip between the two very easily. Yeah, in watching an interview with him in preparation for this, he didn't even set out to be a vocalist. He was, in fact, told by a, a teacher when he was younger to not bother with that yeah. because he didn't he didn't have the natural ability for it, just to stick to learning his instrument. And then, like, and then it just eventually came time for him to start singing songs that he'd written for people. And yeah, like there it is. What an amazing well, voice! Well, the, the, re- the, the he actually became. A vocalist, I guess. I mean, that that happens to a lot of musicians. I mean, Patrice Rushing is another one. I mean, she never set out to be a singer. In fact, she doesn't start singing until like her third or fourth album. She's a jazz pianist, musician, keyboardist. And likewise with Michael, he first came to broader public notice when he teamed up with Norman Connors. And Norman Connors at the time was like just really hitting, like, you know, hit after hit, album after album. And Norman Connors also was coming from a very heavy jazz background in Philly. And, you know, he used to play with Pharoah Sanders and stuff, but then his records increasingly became more R&B oriented. And that's where Michael Henderson came in. And Michael Henderson wrote Valentine Love, which was a hit on a Norman Connors record. And then he wrote You Are My Starship which is one of the great stoner ballads of the 70s period with a kind of nasty payoff line in the chorus that I don't know how he got away with it. And I don't you come too soon, which is kind of interesting. And that song got a lot of radio play and even to this day and so on and so forth, you know, duets with Phyllis Hyman and the momentum from that is what got 
him his deal with Buddha, which was also Norman Connors' label. And then he just took off from there. You know, his records always got a lot of radio play. And if you talk to a lot of, I guess, black people in their 60s, you know, right, like they'll be like, oh, yeah, man, Michael Henderson, that was one of my dudes when I was younger. I would, I would listen to him all the time, man. That was my jam. You'll hear that a lot. <laughs> yeah. Embarrassingly, Greg, we featured the Norman Connors album, You Are My Starship, previously. And of course, we talked about Michael Henderson on there, but we all totally neglected to like mention his Miles Davis. Yeah. You know, his, yeah. his, his period being in that band. Yeah. Well, as the basis. As a basis. And it's funny because a lot of these music collector, nerd, like kind of groups that I'm in and people that I know, a lot of people make his acquaintance on those Miles records. And, you know, wow, Michael Henderson on bass, man. He's just so great on those Miles records. And then they come across Michael Henderson records in the dollar bins or whatever, you know. And oh, yeah, Michael Henderson. That's the guy from, you know, from Miles Davis, you know. And, uh, and they grab it. And, like, I've seen guys get literally, like, offended. Of course, it's always white guys. Offended that, like, <laughs> that, that this music is just so kind of, like, mainstream, R&B, crowd-pleasing, funk with nothing really too avant-garde about it at all. And guys are just like, like they buy it for a dollar and they literally want to go and get the dollar back, you know, because <laughs> that, that's their expectation going in to a Michael Henderson record because they know him from miles. Mm -hmm. I can get not expecting it to sound like this if you're the bassist for Miles Davis, but how can you hear that voice and be like, nah, that's like, it's a, a great voice. Great voice, you know, great song. But again, somebody who's like really into that, the Miles electric thing is less likely to also like, th this is where the, the smooth issue comes in. And this is a subject I always have a lot to say about. I hear this from people all the time. I don't know, man. That's it's too smooth for me. You know, oh, this is too smooth. Oh, it's like smooth is a bad thing. You know what I mean? And like in black culture, smooth is good. You know what I mean? Yeah. In, in no yeah. in no way, at no time was smooth ever a bad thing, whether in music, appearance, or behavior, or just smooth. Being smooth is it like, when did smooth ever become a pejorative negative thing is what I want to know and who decreed it to be so. But yeah. So when you get a lot of people that are coming out of miles and they hear these Michael Henderson records, it's like, I don't know, man, that shit is too smooth for me. It's too smooth. You know? <laughs> so you hear that a lot. <laughs> yeah. I feel like once you have enough of a background and familiarity with jazz and R and B subgenres, mm -hmm. People like Norman Connors and Michael Henderson making these switches from avant-garde jazz into R&B, it makes sense. It does. Because Roy Ayers is another one. Oh, totally. There's so much crossover between jazz and R&B, both experimental and not. Right. And to me, it makes sense. But yeah, like if you're if if Miles Davis is like one of the few black musicians you're getting into, and you're like, okay, I I like this stuff. Right, you know, but you're, you you haven't developed that appreciation for all of the other subgenres right. going on at the same time. It can be a tough transition. It, it can be a very tough transition, and you get guys like Michael Henderson making these switches and Norman Connors and whoever. And you always hear this, and especially from jazz critics, you know, they always mm -hmm. say something. They, they always make it sound like this is insincere. It's not genuine. It's not legitimate. It's you know, quote unquote, just to make money. But the, what they don't get is that. 
this music right here, like on this record, is just as genuine and just as sincere a product of a cultural moment as anything. In fact, it's probably even more sincere than when he's doing the zonked out Miles stuff. And that was already sincere enough to begin with, you know? Definitely. Going back to his vocals on this, though, the falsetto vocals remind me a lot of Ron Isley, especially like the Isley brothers from the same time period when they were the six-piece band. Yes, yes, absolutely. That, I mean, you know, the falsetto thing had been, and especially by this time, mid-late 70s, falsetto voices had been popularized. I mean, falsetto voices going back to doo-wop and then people like Eddie Kendricks and Curtis Mayfield and then, you know, mm-hmm. Russell Tompkins from the Stylistics and um, William Hart from the Delphonics. I mean, the falsetto thing was very much, it was always a popular vocal style in R&B for sure. So the fact that he was able to call on that, you know, just another like weapon in his arsenal for sure. Yeah. So Michael Henderson is on vocals and backing vocals on that track. He also, of course, bass, we mentioned as well. He's also credited on bongos. Uh Some other players on that track, that I'll mention, we have Jerry Jones on drums. He had worked with the Dramatics, mm-hmm. as well as so had another musician on this, Ruby Robinson, who's playing the clavinet on that track. Ruby Robinson was a Detroit musician who worked with many greats, The Temptations, The Four Tops, Isaac Hayes. He's on uh, Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis Jr.'s You Don't Have to Be a Star mm-hmm. to Be in My Show. On organ, we have... Rod Lumpkin, nicknamed The Grinder, he also seems to be like the organ grinder. He also seems to be credited as Nimrod on some occasions, and he worked with Bohannon a bunch. Yeah, another Detroit Um, connection there. Yeah, which, of course, with Michael Henderson coming up in Detroit, it makes sense. There is a guy credited on synth and Fender Rhodes on the song we just listened to, Mark Johnson. I couldn't find much info on him. There are other Mark Johnsons in music, but he does not seem to be them. I'm going to guess that, he, that he's just like a Detroit guy that Michael Henderson knew about, you know, because there's there's a very much like there's a Detroit theme running through the credits on this record. And even at the bottom of the credits where he says, I love Detroit, if you notice in the <laughs> liner notes. Yeah. So and even though the record was recorded here in New York at Electric Lady Studios, just about everybody on it seems to have been imported from Detroit. So so there's that. Yeah. So probably a Detroit guy on the next song that we're going to check out. Uh, the person on the fender roads is definitely of note. Uh, we'll talk about that when we come back, but let's get into the next song that we're going to feature, which is, man, this is a groove oh, right yeah. here. A smooth groove. Mm-hmm. Let me love you. Yeah. Side a track three. This one just kills me. Come on, baby. 
sunlight, but if it's cloudy, I can't come shining through, shining through, shining through. Let me love you. I wanna love you. I think that's my favorite song on the album. It's a tough call because there's a few real bangers on here, but I think that one most for- perfectly captures that like cross section of jazz and R and B going on. Like you could take the vocals out of it and the song would be almost just as good as yeah. an instrumental cut. Absolutely. And it's just perfect jazz R and B crossover. Yeah. I mean, I, it's definitely way up there for me. I, I know what my favorite track is. We'll get to that in a minute. But I, I love this track because, as you mentioned before, there's a very notable guest on that wavy, ring-modulated Fender Rhodes, a gentleman by the name <laughs> of Mr. Herbert Jeffrey Hancock. and Known to the world as Herbie. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Fellow uh, Miles Davis. Alumnus. Alum, yeah. yeah. I mean, at the time, Herbie, Herbie had always been a, se- a, busy, a busy session guy, and even in the like in the sixties, you know, he was in Miles's band, but he was doing his own Blue Note records and a ton of sessions. And even all the way into the seventies, you see Herbie on all kinds of. I mean, he's on songs in the key of life. He's on a, just a ton of records. So he's always like, you know, you, you couldn't keep him out of the studio. All you had to do was ask, basically. So there he is, <laughs> helping out his buddy Michael Henderson. It's a wonderful effect on the kind of track that definitely cemented Michael Henderson's position in terms of like, you know, what they hadn't started calling it quiet storm yet, even though the Smokey Robinson song and album that gave the genre and format its name had come out two years earlier. You know, I guess the name really became common usage more like in the eighties, but that track right there is for sure (laughs) an early instance of what we would, later come to know as you know quiet storm Mm -hmm. in particular what i like about it is that it is that it's real romantic and smooth but it's not like uncomfortably so right it's still just you know it's i knew when i heard that that it had to have been uh sampled and and looking into it it has been a number of times uh earl earl sweatshirt used it on track 4n just a couple years ago Mm -hmm. and then DFC featuring MC8 used it in 94 on the track Caps Get Peeled. Uh-huh. And MC8 must have liked this track because Compton's Most Wanted also used it on a track. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, it's, it's, got, it's, got, it's got a certain flow to it that is very much in tune with what the guys on the, what the hip hop guys on the West Coast in the 90s were really into. That just kind of like laid back, cruising kind of thing that you can have that, that slow molasses flow over. You know, that track is kind of tailor-made for that. So no surprise that MC8 would really be into that. Yeah. yeah. It's got that Gia. smoothness that we've been talking about, but there's also some tension and darkness yeah. mixed in there, too. Yeah. I mean, one of the things about that, that are interesting about Michael Henderson is that these records, you know, they're, they're definitely smooth in one sense, but 
they also have certain kind of like spontaneous, let's just call them spontaneous edges to them. Like, you know, there, there's like certain things he could have done to smooth them out even more, but that he chose not to. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I was surprised at how much dissonance is yeah. kind of mixed in there, but really expertly. F- five years of miles will, will definitely give you a handle on dissonance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he's definitely got that kind of like raw edge to it, but not so much that it won't get played on the radio. He was able to walk that fine line and just keep it just interesting enough. You know, he, you can tell that he had some different ideas, but he just wanted to put them into a format that was accessible to a lot of people. I mean, there are some tracks, his previous album, Solid, which actually, if I had to really choose, is probably my favorite overall. There is some weird stuff happening on that record that I absolutely love. And there's some really like zonked out instrumentals on one of which he even plays drums on and a weird samba with like these kind of weird Brazilian chords in it that he uses, but that's recorded a little bit distorted in a weird way. It's like, it's weird, but it works though. Ultimately it just works, you know? So it's not just like smooth for smooth sake, smooth that like was arrived at painstakingly fighting with his other more avant-garde impulses. <laughs> yeah. And I think we'll just kind of do a little, kind of a little bio of uh, Michael Henderson at this point. He was born July 7th, 1951 just turned 70. in Yazoo. What's that? He just turned 70 a couple days ago. Yes. I was going to, I was going to note that. Yeah. He just turned 70 years old. He was, so he was like 26 when he did this yeah, album. And, and 19 <laughs> when he joined miles or something like that. Yeah, it's nuts. He was born in Yazoo City, Mississippi, but his family moved to D- Detroit when he was like one or two years old. And so he, you know, he just grew up like basically in the neighborhood, same neighborhood as all the Motown people. And at a pretty young age, you know, he picked up the bass and was playing with all kinds of people. Like S- Stevie Wonder was one of them. Yep. And it was, uh, in fact, when he was playing with Stevie, a gig at the Apollo that apparently Miles saw him and uh, said to Stevie, I'm stealing your fucking bass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Something along yeah, those yeah, lines. Yeah. <laughs> he had, and, and um, he had been really inspired by James Jamerson, who we just mentioned a couple episodes back, uh, you know, the, the Motown bassist. Yes. Yes. And he, he said he says he got all his moves and licks from James Jamerson. Well, a, so a whole a- generation of bassists got all of their moves and licks from James Jamerson. I mean, James Jamerson is just like a, a kind of a blanket situation. Every single bassist of that era, you know, and most of the ones since have some kind of influence from him. And you can't even talk to like a classic, a British kind of classic rock, you know, bass player. It's like they're all like James Jamerson was the guy. Mm-hmm. So... And so Mike, so Michael definitely like, I mean, and he had the upfront, you know, firsthand, he could actually go see James Jamerson. I mean, he was still, he was a teenager, but I'm sure you could probably sneak into clubs and see him. Ray Parker Jr., who's around the same age as Michael, grew up in Detroit, kind of alongside him, has a lot of mm-hmm. interesting stories along those lines, you know, even before they ended up playing together on that session with Marvin. Yeah, worth noting that Ray Parker Jr. co-wrote the track we just listened to yes. and was on the guitar on that one. Yep. And Ray Parker Jr., known to the world as the Ghostbusters theme guy, but he's so much oh more. Oh my than god! That. You know, I, I got into an I got into an online 
argument with somebody years and years back. One of these guys posted a listicle about one-hit wonders, and he totally trashed Ray Parker Jr. as like the only thing he ever did in his life was Ghostbusters. And I'm just like, you, you poor fool. If you only knew, <laughs> if you only knew, dude, mm. on the average day, Ray Parker Jr. got more done by 11 a.m. than you will ever do in your lifetime, okay? Let's, just, <laughs> this, so let's not even go there. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, on the back of the uh, the record jacket, you know, they're they're hyping Michael Henderson up, but you know, they mentioned him playing. He's a virtuoso bass player. He's played with and made fans of Miles Davis, Aretha Franklin, Stevie Wonder, Roberta Flack, and Mick Jagger. And one of those people just mentioned appears on this album. Yeah. Yes, that would be. Roberta, Roberta Flack. Flack on my favorite track. Oh, look, that rhymes. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. And that is how, how about you introduce this, our next selection, Greg? This is, um, I, I was mentioning before, you know, like as far as favorite tracks go, this is definitely my go to on this album. It's long, it's epic, it's sexy, it's smooth, but it's also had, it's also kind of progressive. In a way, you know, like the way it mixes in jazz and R&B and like long form things. And he duets with Roberta Flack to great effect. And I like the lyrical concept about hooking up at a concert that you are playing. So let's listen to At the Concert. Side B, track, track two. two. Can, 
It's an amazing song. And it's the longest track on the album at seven minutes and change. And, um, and another thing that I almost forgot to mention before, the saxophone on this song, played by another notable Detroit guy, Eli Fontaine, who's the same guy who plays that distinctive opening saxophone riff on What's Going On. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. Yeah. The guy that like he actually... When he actually played that riff, as you hear it on the record, Marvin Gaye stopped him right after and says, you're awesome. You can pack up and go home now. And he's like, wait, but I, I was just fooling around. I was like, well, you fool around wonderfully. Thank you. And, 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 <laughs> and that's like that little doodle that he was doing just to warm up is what you hear to this day. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. That was all that was needed. Yeah, that's, all, that's all that was needed. <laughs> there was more than just Ver- Roberta Flack. On vo- as as guest vocals on there, there was also on backing vocals. We heard Gwen Guthrie. Gwen Guthrie's on there. That's right. Yeah, of course she's best known for the song "Ain't Nothing Going On But the Rent." But she did a lot. She she did a whole lot more than that, though. Oh yeah, as a songwriter, yeah, she, as a backup singer on a lot of stuff, she's on a lot of records with a lot of people as well. Yolanda McCullough, yeah, was one of the other voices we heard. She worked with Ashford and Simpson. Eddie Floyd, Tina Turner, that's just a yeah, few. Yeah. She's another yeah, yeah. one. She, she, she was like a, a tall, stunning, knockout, you know, stunner, beautiful woman who had a few records of her own, great voice. She, um, you know, did a lot of backup vocal work. I mean, her solo career never really took off, but if you pay attention to liner notes, she's all over the place. Nice. The other name is Brenda White, and she had worked with Roberta Flack a bunch, so that's probably how she yeah. ended up on this track mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking of tall... I just learned today that Michael Henderson is six foot six. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that is, that's wild. Yeah. Six foot six. He's a, uh, yeah, he's a, he's a tall strapping lad. <laughs> yeah. It's like and yeah. NBA height right there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I'm six three. Mm. And uh, when I meet someone that height, I, I'm looking up, I'm finding out what it's like for everyone else. <laughs> right, you, right, right. You're just a point guard, Pete. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Henderson's a power forward. <laughs> that is true. No, he's a wide receiver. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go. Bring it all back to Michael Henderson. Yeah, at the concert, great cut. Um, Sean, why don't you, at this point, tell us a little bit about the uh, Spotify playlist that you put together for this episode mm-hmm. this is like one of my favorite kinds of musical intersections to capture in a playlist that whole jazz funk crossover uh, a lot of good suggestions from greg for this one we got some uh shaka khan on there patrice russian who we've mentioned a few times the whispers brenda russell yep. switch also put a Cyrita track on there from the Stevie Wonder Presents album yep. to get some of that Stevie sound that you're hearing a little bit of here and there. Billy Preston's on here. We got two different Norman Connors tracks, both the ones that famously featured Michael Henderson on vocals, Valentine Love, and You, and you Are My Starship. Starship. Yep. 
which we previously covered. Exactly. Digging this, we got a Norman Connors app out there. Yeah. There's a couple other selections from records we've talked about. I put a Earth, Wind, and Fire song on there, Running, from the album All in All, oh, to yeah. get more of that jazz funk oh, crossover yeah. sound. Such a great one. Uh, Isley Brothers, who we mentioned from the album Go All the Way that we covered. Mm-hmm. And then I put a uh, George Duke track on there from the album Follow the Rainbow, which is one that I've gotten my cue to cover on this show at some I'm, point. I'm, I'm a George Duke fanatic, and that's actually one of my favorites of his epic albums. I, I love that album. It's a really well, really whenever good. we get around to that, we'll make sure to bring you back. All right, great. <laughs> so, yeah, there's all kinds of good stuff on there. Um, Idris Muhammad, another guy on there that perfectly kind of crossed over between that jazz and funk sound at different times. Right. You can find all those tracks on Spotify. Just get on there and search. I'd buy that podcast, all one word, to find this and every other playlist that we put together every week. Cool. Excellent. Well, at this point, we are going to switch to an installment of For the Record, where we set the record straight on misinformation stated in previous episodes. I'm going to start with one detail and then turn things over to Greg after that. On our Richard Harris, A Tramp Shining episode, we stated that it was Nancy Sinatra, not Cher, who did the song Bang Bang. Well, yes, Nancy Sinatra recorded a version of it. However, Cher was the original artist to perform it, and it was written by Sonny Bono. Right. So that is what I am here to correct, but I'm going to turn things over to Greg, Mm. who is going to talk a little bit about an episode that he missed out on, on one of his favorite artists, Chico Barque. Chico Barque. Okay. So, um, Chico Barque, that, that, uh, that album, first of all, is an album that like my dad actually bought that album in 1978 when I was a kid. So I know it really well. And, um, I could hear where you guys were just like dealing with the album itself and, you know, and just what your impressions of the tracks, but there's a lot to be said about Chico Buarque, who is one of Brazil's most like highly like regarded and legendary songwriter, composer, singer, lyricist, icons. And um, he started out as a young man in the mid '60s writing these songs that were kind of like samba throwback songs, but with really intricate lyrics. He's considered one of the great men of letters of the Portuguese language. Period, and the other thing is that, you know, his, uh, his sister, Miusha, was married to Joao Gilberto, and he's Bebel Gilberto's uncle as well. So aside from the fact that his lyrics are so brilliant, he's also been, always been, like, a staunch leftist, and he's always had lots of problems. Like, when they had the military dictatorship in the 70s, he was singled out, in particular, for censorship, because in Brazil in the 70s, you had to... Anytime you made a record, you had to run your lyrics by the censorship board and they had to approve any song that you recorded before you could record it. And uh, it got to the point with him where they would just like veto his songs, even just by his, his name being on there. So he had to resort to other tactics like making up fake names to get a song through. And uh, he had one song in 1971 called Apesaji Você, which came out as a single. And that was, it means despite, in spite of you and the military guys, the government 
quickly figured out that he was talking to them, even though he said it's about a bossy woman, because if you analyze the lyrics, you can interpret it as being him talking to a bossy wife. But that was enough for them to like issue an order to like ban the record, get it taken out of stores, army tanks rolling up to the pressing plants. It, it was bad. You know, so um, by the late 70s, when this particular album from that episode was made, uh, there had been a little bit of a loosening of the restrictions and a bunch of songs that he had done that had previously been banned for their political content. Suddenly he was able to put on a record. So there are songs on that album, basically all the ones he couldn't put out going back seven or eight years are now on that record. There's another song on there called Calisi, the one he sings with Milton Nascimento. There's a famous concert in 1973 uh, that was televised where he was singing it with, with Gilberto Gill this time, same song, and the censors kept turning the microphones off to keep him from singing it. And you could see him running across the stage. Each time he would grab another mic to keep singing the song, that mic would go dead. Then he'd run to the next one and that would go dead. And then that just trying to sing this song. So, and uh, the other thing with Chico Buarque is that he's super refined, super charming, has a massive catalog of songs. Every Brazilian knows all the words to, and he's also, um, grow for years growing up, every Brazilian woman I ever talked to mentioned his name and they get this dreamy, faraway, lustful look in their eyes. And I just can't imagine what it's like, like to have a country full of women that beautiful, all lusting after you. So that's another aspect of Chico. And even now at age, he's 76 or just turned 77. And he's still handsome, still charming, still has the green eyes. He's also a published writer and a playwright. And uh, he's also a lightning rod for political controversy to this day because of the whole polarization in society. Everybody who's like on that right wing Bolsonaro thing really, really hates him because he's he's stayed the course, has never deviated from his beliefs. And uh, yeah, Chico, he uh, there's a lot to be said about that guy. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, yeah, and and that and that is a great record filled with great songs that again everybody knows them. And I, if there was time, I could have broken down what a lot of the meanings of the songs were, but maybe some other time. <laughs> <laughs> well, Greg, yeah, thank you for you know coming back on and talking Michael Henderson with us, and uh, glad that you uh, give you just a few minutes to talk a little bit about Chico because yeah i I was unaware of him until we did that episode, and it's like, wow, this, this is like the Bob Dylan of Brazil. yeah he, he's he's in he, the, the comparison can very aptly be made to to a Dylan or somebody like that i mean they they literally teach his songs in colleges, like they analyze his 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 song lyrics and like you know if you if you go like to a therapist or a psychiatrist or whatever, they'll like quote chico lyrics to you as part of the the whole treatment it, it's like that it's like on that level so yeah incredible <laughs> i'm glad he's an artist that we're able to feature yeah, yeah, on, yeah. On the, i mean on, on this it's, it's kind of cool that like you found that record for a dollar um it's just it's not an expensive record it sold a lot at the time you know it was never released in the u.s you know so that was like one of those lucky one dollar import things you know so that's very cool all right well we'll turn back to michael henderson as we wrap things up here Apparently, you know, in my research for this, it, it does not appear he has put out an album or really recorded regularly since the mid-1980s, but he seems to still be active with performing and touring. He is. 
Do you are you aware of anything he's like he's done in recent years, Greg? I know that he tours a lot. He I think he does studio work. He's not in any huge hurry to like, you know, make a new album, I guess, for whatever reason. Although that that's not to say he won't do one tomorrow. But he he's kind of like very similar to Norman Connors. I mean, Norman Connors hasn't recorded that much in recent years, but they both they they do those, you know, R&B cruise ship type deals, you know, you, you'll probably catch Michael Henderson doing that. And um, the last interview I saw with him from a couple of years ago, he says, yeah, like, I still really get off on this. I still really enjoy doing this. He's just not in any hurry, in any hurry to make a new album, I suppose. He's definitely active. And apparently his, his bass playing is as great as ever. And his voice is still there. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, it's, it's wild that he's only 70 now for how long he's been active. Yeah. He was just so young when he got started. Very, very, very young. Like him and Ray Parker Jr. both, you know, they're both kind of around that age. Uh, Ray is actually even a couple of years younger still. And Ray is just like, you no, know, he, since he was a teenager, he's just been doing all kinds of stuff. So it's kind of interesting that like, you know, the two of them plus Bohannon backed Marvin Gaye on that session, which by the way, came out as a bonus CD on the 40th anniversary reissue of what's going on. I think it's called the Detroit instrumental session and it's all mm. laid back instrumental funk. That's extremely funky. And it's Marvin on keys, Michael on bass, Ray on guitar, Bohannon on drums. And it's absolutely fantastic. I'm not sure if they released it separately. Uh, they really should. And I wish they put it out on vinyl too, because it's just really, really, really amazing stuff. <laughs> Yeah, it's something I almost can't believe it happened. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's <laughs> great. <laughs> well, uh, Jeremy or Sean, you have any uh, closing thoughts on Michael Henderson here? We're, we're doing him justice, I hope, after uh, kind of having dropped the ball on the Norman Connors episode. Yeah. I mean, I'll just say, like, all his records are dollar bin records, and that's just a shame because... Like there's good tracks in pretty much everything this guy put out, you know, even into the early eighties with the record wide receiver and stuff. Like there's so many really cheap, really underappreciated Michael Henderson gems out there. So Michael Henderson has, has one thing in, um, in common with, uh, Herbie Mann, Cause you know, Herbie Mann's got that one record that nobody can get past the cover where he's just kind of naked on the cover of that push push record. And a lot of people, when you bring up Herbie Mann, they have to bring up that record. Michael Henderson's got that one album where he's in a Speedo. <laughs> Slingshot. Yes. <laughs> yes. And it's a great record, you know, And but he put his six foot six self into that like tiny little Speedo. But, you know, he's if he had the body for it and his lady fans liked it, you know. But yeah, that's one of those things where like you'll bring him up and people will be like, hey, man, is he still wearing that Speedo? <laughs> you know. <laughs> But uh, regardless yeah. of that, the record is great. I mean, my personal favorite album, I, like I said before, I think is solid. I have like th the first the one. first one. Yeah, I have like three copies of that. All got that I got them all for a buck. I got two copies of uh, of Going Places. You know, again, his records are very much dollar bin. But what's a dollar bin record anymore? I've noticed a lot of things that were always a dollar are now five and ten. So it's getting hard out there. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I don't know if this show is. We're, we're by accident raising <laughs> the, the price on some of these by hyping them up. It's funny, this one, um, I became aware of this just recently when I ordered a copy of Madonna's Like a Virgin from a certain DJ Hard Bargain co-host Sean, <laughs> mm -hmm. and he's, he sent this along as, as a bonus 
record. Oh, you mean as, as, as a packaging know. thing, just so, so <laughs> for like you know when when sellers send you a record and they put an extra record just to protect the one you're actually getting. We'll go with that because I'm not sure Sean wants like me to be telling people he's sending free records with his orders. Here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm just, I'm just saying right now, you buy a record from DJ Hard Bargain on Discogs, mention this podcast, and I'll give you some free stuff. I'll hook it up. All right. There, there you, you go. go. <laughs> come <laughs> find me. They'll come flocking to you now. <laughs> it's funny because so my night when I received that package was me rotating between Madonna's Like a Virgin and, and this, and it was a pretty hype evening. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> Can't go wrong with those two. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize Chic is the backing band on Like a Virgin. Yeah, well, produced by Nile Rogers. Yep. So, all right, Jeremy, you got any final thoughts? This just reminded me we have to do a Ray Parker Jr. episode. Oh yeah, we do. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I think we've we've been talking about that since our Bohannon episode, which was like the first few episodes yeah. of the podcast. Like, when, 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 you, when you when you radio. when you do, it's funny. Like I I just had a radio album on earlier today, but when you actually start doing a Ray Parker episode, and when you start doing the research into him, you're gonna end up doing a lot more research than you even anticipated. Because that dude is his career and his his resume is just so beyond epic, and. Um, you know, he, he was interviewed on the Questlove Supreme podcast, and I would highly recommend checking out that episode because it's lengthy, it's completely fascinating, it's really funny. He's a, he's, he's a really chill, funny dude for everything that he's done, but um, he's got a lot of stories. He's got some Barry White stories that'll just make you piss your pants, so. <laughs> Look forward to yeah. that. <laughs> All right, well, we are going to get out of here on the track Going Places, Side A, Track 2. I think this is another one that Sean said. I, I love he, this track. He heard some... Yeah, this is, this is the title yeah. track, and, and it's, uh, it's the one that's got the most play digitally on Spotify from this album. I think Sean said this, this is another one that you said reminded you of the Isleys, mm-hmm. Sean. Oh, yeah, definitely. Heavy Isley Brothers vibes on this track. I hear some Stevie when the synth comes in, too. Mm-hmm. So, all right, well... Thank you, Greg, for joining us. Do you have anything that you want to you want to plug or mention before you get, we get out of here? A little birdie told me you might have a big gig coming up. Yeah, you know, I'm doing I'm doing the DJ set for the uh, Sun Ra Orchestra gig at Central Park Summer Stage on July the 24th, and I'm definitely looking well, the, also with Sisters of the Nitty Gritty, another great band, and I'm really looking forward to that. I posted about that on my social media and everybody got super, super, super excited, even though, I mean, I've done summer stage before and I've played with the orchestra before at least once or twice because they play at New Blue all the time. And New Blue is like my home base, basically. And uh, they play there once or twice a year. So this is something that's kind of been like developing for a while. But I'm just glad that if everybody's all excited about it, everybody's going to be an awesome day. I can tell you that much incredible all right well thank you so much for listening to i'd buy that for a dollar thank you to greg kaz for joining us again thanks for having me my name is peter cook we'll see you later i'm sean hartman and i'm jeremy ruggles i'm greg kaz and we're going places with michael henderson
getting dressed Last night, still fresh in my mind Spent the evening with a very special person Someone who remembers how to be kind We're going places, you and me Going places, waiting Wait.